Uh, if you grew up in the local church, uh, what do you say when someone says God is good? Amen. <laughs> Amen. No, you say all the time. And, and, then someone says, and then someone says all the time and you say, yeah, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Amen. 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 Right? Maybe you didn't hear that because it was kind of a mess. But when somebody says God is good, you say all, all the time. You say all the time. God is good. Um, but it doesn't always feel like that, does it? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> Happy Monday. No, it's not. You know, I guess that's that sort of thing, you know. Uh, uh, hope you have a good Friday. It's going to suck. Uh, you know, it's that sort of thing. Um, but listen, sometimes it's really hard to have confidence in the fact that God is good, isn't it? You can say yes. It'll feel good. It'll feel good to say yes instead of hiding that crap. A few months ago, a friend of mine, uh, I won't say uh, who he is, but his initials are Robert Harris. Uh, he sent me this text. He sent me this text. Uh, hey, do you ever stop coming to a crossroads in your faith? And I said, like, I was in the hallway right after the house on Tuesday. I said, nope, they just get more intense and more wonderful. And then he cussed. I, I decided to enter that in there uh, because I've decided not to cuss all of a sudden. Uh, uh, and then he said, that sucks. And then I said, it happens in marriage too. And he said, ha, 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 hell yeah. <laughs> Can you just leave that up for a minute? That was so great. That made my night. Uh, uh, I I actually texted, Robert, you don't know this, I texted other friends of mine from Seattle, and I was like, this is how I minister to college students, (laughs) you know? And then they were like, what are we donating to the house for? um, But do you see what Robert was talking about here, right? Like, he didn't use the word doubt, right? But do you ever stop coming to a crossroads in your faith? You know, like, it's that, that scene from... I don't know, certain movies that aren't westerns but kind of look like in the middle of prairies or something where like somebody's wandering down a road and they come to like a crossroads and it's like, well, do I, which way do I go? There's like no landmarks anywhere, right? That's sort of the image that's brought up in this. When he's talking about crossroads, he's talking about doubt. Is this, all this tenable? Like, is my faith tenable? I have to, feel like I have to keep choosing over and over and over again. Tonight we're talking about doubt. We're going to explore doubt through two passages of scripture, Psalm 73, Matthew 28. I've got to pick because there are plenty. We're going to look at why doubt happens, what it is, what to do with it, and what God thinks about it. And I want to say now, I don't want to like wait till the end to tell you anything special. I just want to say now because I want you to remember this. Doubt is an instrument of faith. Doubt is an instrument of faith. Our God is far more comfortable with doubt than you are, friends. In fact, whatever faith you do have, and however mingled it is with doubt, welcome to the family. Let's pray. Father, um, may the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. God, draw near to us and set us free. Let us know that you are not scared of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Keely, if you would, would you put up the first few verses of Psalm 73? This is from the NLT translation. Uh, whatever translation you have is the best one, so feel free to use that. Um, a Psalm of Asaph. That's how it actually begins. If you look in your text, I didn't include it, but as a title of it, because we actually know who wrote it. Uh, <clears throat> Truly, God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, and I was almost gone. Truly, God is good. But as for me, I almost lost my footing, 
My feet were slipping, and I was almost gone. We live in Chattanooga, and you can imagine someone rock climbing or bouldering, I assume. Picture it. Someone halfway up the side of a stone wall, and their foot begins to slip. And they're not, I don't know the title for it, but they're not roped in? I don't know. Their foot begins to slip. Maybe it's happened to some of you, but how would you feel scaling a mountain and then losing your footing? That's how Asaph felt about his faith in the goodness of God. The, the, the way it reads in Hebrew is almost as if the first line has got quotes around it. Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. And then he responds to that quote. Like he heard somebody say, God is good all the time. And he says, but as for me, I almost lost it. Asaph is doubting. That's what this is. He's doubting the goodness of God. He slipped. He lost his footing. He was almost gone. He was almost convinced that God isn't good. He doubted. And you know what it feels like to doubt. You know, because you live and you relate to the world, and doubting is a part of our everyday lives. It's an instrument of faith, too. It's a tool of faith, not a tool against it. It's a part of it. Think of it this way. I have this image locked in my head from a sermon I taught years ago about faith. It's just never left me. Imagine this rickety old bridge crossing a chasm. Actually, close your eyes and actually try to imagine this. Close your eyes. Get it in your head as detailed as you possibly can. Imagine a, a, a chasm that has a rickety old bridge from like an Indiana Jones movie or something. Like crossing this chasm. See it? And imagine God is standing there and he tells you that that bridge is trustworthy, even if it doesn't seem like it, and he wants you to cross it. Faith isn't intellectually believing that what God said is true. That's not what faith is. Faith isn't, you know, standing on the side of this chasm looking at the bridge and saying, I believe that God said that that bridge will hold me. That's not what faith is. Faith is crossing the bridge one step at a time. That's what faith is. It's actually taking your life and putting it on the line by crossing that bridge. Right? I mean, this isn't just like a biblical definition. If I tell you to have faith in a particular mutual fund, that's, I probably should come up with an example that's more like you. I have faith in this, uh, this uh, you know, uh, exam uh, that we have printed from last year's test or something. Uh, then, then what that means is to actually... Trust yourself to it, not just intellectually acknowledge it. That's, that's faith. Doubt is something that you might feel or experience while walking across the bridge. In this way, do you see that faith and doubt are not opposite? If faith is walking on the bridge, doubt is what you might experience as you walk the bridge. Do you see that? Doubt is something you experience while you live out your faith. And everyone has doubts. Sometimes we have confidence. Sometimes we doubt. Both of these as we live out our faith. And either way, we can continue to take one step at a time, regardless of how I feel at any given moment. I might look at the next step and think there is no way this one's going to hold me up and do it anyway. I might have a ton of confidence and take a step forward. So I would have faith and doubt potentially at the same time. Do you see that? I experience doubt when I prepare sermons. I experience doubt when I confess my sins. 
I experience doubt when I offer forgiveness. I actually can't think of a single area of my life that doesn't have uh, doubt, where, especially where my faith is being stretched. Everywhere I'm growing, doubt is hanging out. Everywhere I'm growing, doubt is hanging out. It's a very real part of the life of faith, friends, and it's expressed everywhere the people of God are found. Our psalm is written by a priest of Israel named Asaph, and he's almost lost his faith in the goodness of God. This is a priest, this is a leader, and he's struggling. Listen to a a quote from a saint in the life of the church. Listen to this quote. My, My guess is that many of us in this room have never dared to get curious enough about our doubts to go this way. This is a person of God who can do this. Listen to this. So many unanswered questions live within me afraid to uncover them because of the blasphemy. If there be God, please forgive me. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. I am told God loves me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. Anybody know who said that? Mother Teresa, in her journal entries, her letters to her priest that cared for her. And you know what we did with her? Made her a saint. Abraham doubted God. Moses doubted God. David doubted God. The disciples of Jesus doubted God. The very passage of Scripture that we're reading today is part of the Bible. We call this the Word of God, and it's about a priest who's doubting. In fact, doubt is so much a part of the Bible that you can't find a single claim that atheists make, old atheists or the new ones, that isn't already brought up in the Bible. Job, Lamentations, Habakkuk, Ecclesiastes, the Psalms. Doubt isn't an enemy of faith, friends. It's an instrument of it. It's more like your white blood cells than it is a virus. It's a very real part of the life of faith for the people of God. Your Bible is full of doubts expressed to God about His goodness and His power. And it seems to me that He is more comfortable with our doubts than we are. And I think this should bring us great comfort. Because we actually have doubts. I wish Robert's story was the only one I've heard of sort of, you know, somebody dying and somebody else saying they're an angel now, which doesn't even make sense. That's like saying they're a cricket now. Like, that's a totally different being. Read your Bible, okay? Uh, They're not angels. They're humans. They're different creatures. Or, or, Or giving you a Bible verse which is totally meant to encourage a community, but it's not addressed in an isolated verse to a person in mourning about their friends dying. But we, we, we feel uh, like it's inappropriate to say, please do not call my friend an angel. They're not. Please do not tell me in this moment that everything's for a reason because right now it, it doesn't feel like it and that's not helpful. And I don't see anywhere in the scriptures where somebody experiencing what I'm experiencing in the midst of this moment is told that thing and it turned out really well.
Only God and certain madmen have no doubts. Only God and certain madmen have no doubts. That's from our brother Martin Luther from 500 years ago. I love it. And here in our psalm, this priest of Israel is recording his doubts in what would become a part of the Holy Scriptures, which is so fascinating. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project says uh, something like this. He says that God takes humanity's words of doubt and makes them His word in response to their doubts. Something like that. It's beautiful. Asaph is doubting the goodness of God. Why does he doubt? What stirs up his doubt? Is it because of the debates about the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2? Or because of the intellectual challenges of evil in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? The age-old story. Maybe it's because his anthropology professor believes that humans descended from apes. That's why he's doubting. I doubt your goodness, God. Look at what he says in, in Psalm 73, 3-14. It's a bit of reading, but stick with it and just let it... Uh, I guess feel it or something? I don't know. Listen, because some of you guys get like stuck. We read for like four minutes and I can feel tenseness in the room. Like, is this ever going to end? Just chill out. Uh, Listen, here's why I almost lost my footing. Because I envied the proud. You know why I doubted the goodness of God? Because I envied. When I saw them prosper despite their wickedness, They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace. The the Hebrew actually says their pride necklaces them. It's a beautiful, crazy image. And and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything. It's great. So check us out. that's, That's a much better saying for our cultural context. The actual Hebrew says their eyes are bulging out of their flesh. The idea is they're so fat on their consumption that that everything on their face is pudgy because they have everything. It's an image of opulence. It's an image of of, uh, uh, sort of a a mafia king just feasting on the world and nobody stopping them, right? So the NLT translated, translated, these fat cats have everything that their hearts could ever wish for. I envied them. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens, and their words strut throughout the earth. You see that? Everywhere, in the heights and in the depths, their words go. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. And you know what they say? What does God know? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people, enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. And every morning brings me pain. Do you see why he's doubting the goodness of God? Is it an intellectual problem? No. I almost lost my footing because I envied the proud. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? This reminds me of the older brother in the story of the two sons in Luke 15. Or, or, or things which drop from our lips all the time. We confuse the means with the end in different ways, and we, we set about doing good, and then we, we, we lament 
when we begin to compare ourselves to others, our fortunes to others. He's looking around at others who, who, uh, who aren't following God, and he's seeing them prosper, and it's just sinking his confidence because he doesn't have what they have. Last semester, I was talking with someone in, in here about cheating in, in school, and he was saying it's really, really hard not to cheat because virtually everyone does. Every single person in his class, he's, and I'm not in college anymore, I'm undergrad anymore, I don't know how prevalent it is, but I imagine it's really easy these days to cheat. And so I believed him, he said, you know, it just seems like everybody's cheating, and they're all getting better grades than me. And I wanted to say, no, God is totally going to give you an A if you don't cheat. But that's not how it works. The fat cats are getting A's, you know what I mean? Like, the reality is, for the most part, cheaters are going to get better grades if they don't get caught. That's the way it works. That's why people cheat. That is the, but the, the, the very short-term cost of virtue is actually, and this was my encouragement to the guy, is that cheating is not going to offer, not cheating will offer him almost no worldly benefits. What's the benefit of not cheating? Do it for the glory of God and his pleasure and for the ways in which he's going to make you a better man? You know what he probably did with my sales pitch? Doubt whether or not it's worth following God. Do you see that? It's a, it's a small thing, but I mean, friends, if you're following Jesus, don't cheat. Okay? This isn't a sermon about cheating, but don't cheat. Um, you're welcome. Uh, and, and if you want to know what the reward is, it probably is not as good a grades as the people who cheated. Probably. And you might look at them and see that they aren't following God, and they're getting better grades than you, and you might look at them and go, why do I even try to follow God? I doubt his goodness now because I got a B and they have an A. Asaph is looking at cheaters, at people who manipulate others, at people who are gluttonous and prideful and mocking God, and he's jealous. He's not high and mighty uh, pointing out his righteousness against their sin. He wants what they have. They seem to have it all, and because he doesn't have what they have, it almost makes him slip. When I imagine the, the, the image that he paints, it's of somebody who's clinging on for dear life by their fingertips. He almost believes, he says, that God isn't good. He doubts. Each of us desires for our lives to look a certain way, friends. Everyone in here does. And sometimes when it doesn't look like the way we desire, we begin to question whether or not God is good. It's not for intellectual reasons. My hungers, my desires, which are really the things which matter to me, my intellect is just used to justify all those things. My hunger and my desires are not satisfied in the way that I would like. And I begin to question if God is real, if He's good, if there's any truth to it. I'm single and I want to be in a relationship. Is God even real? I'm lonely and I want friends and I see other people have friends. Is God even good? I'm sick and I want to be healthy. Where is God? I'm wounded and I want a better history and I know people who have better histories than me. Is God even real? Is He good? I see others who have these things and I begin to doubt God. I begin to doubt the God that I worship. But listen, doubt is never, if it's not obvious, it's never motivated by strictly intellectual reasons. It's always entangled with our desires and motives. I spent a while in preparing for tonight thinking about how much time to devote to the intellectual challenges of our faith. Some of the things your professors say that stir you up or whatever. I get really pissed hearing some stories about your professors who take advantage of you with power dynamics. 
um, saying things that would never fly if you were just five years older. Uh, it makes me furious. If you ever want to talk about your professors, come find me. Um, some of them are fantastic. We're going to bring one in at the end of the semester to talk about the Bible um, uh, yeah, on a Thursday night. Listen, okay, I've spoken on intellectual challenges to our faith, though, and I've spoken on doubt before at the house. Um, and, and so there's a sense in which I just kind of want to send you guys to, like, our podcast on iTunes. Uh, there's a sermon called Doubt in, in a series um, called Something More. And there's a, the sermon on uh, the flood, on Noah and the flood. Um, which has uh, uh, been an enemy to me um, and, and a kind of a lover to me for most of my life. Um, I talked a lot about stuff there, but, but I, I want to say just a couple things because I've already addressed this before at the house, and I want you to just go to the podcast if you want to listen to some of these things. But um, I'll say a couple words to those of you who, are, who, who struggle a lot with the intellectual side of doubt, okay? Um, listen to this, uh, this quote from one of my favorite books called A Severe Mercy. Oh, it's one of my favorite books read it. Um, uh, This is a man writing about his own journey of faith in a journal. He says this, Christianity, in a word, the divinity of Jesus, seemed probable to me, but there's a gap between the probable and the proved. There's a gap between the probable and the proved. How was I to cross it? If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. I wanted to see him eat a bit of fish. I wanted letters of fire across the sky, and I got none of these. And I continued to hang about on the edge of the gap. Later, I had the rather chilling realization that I couldn't go back. In my old, easygoing theism, I had regarded Christianity as a sort of fairy tale, and I had neither accepted nor rejected Jesus, since I had never, in fact, encountered Him. Now I had. The position was not, as I had been comfortably thinking all these months, merely a question of whether I was to accept the Messiah or not. It was a question of whether I was to accept Him or reject. My God, there was a gap behind me too. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble, but what of the leap to rejection? There might be no certainty that Christ was God, but by God there was no certainty that He wasn't. If I were to accept, I might and probably would face the thought throughout the years, perhaps after all it's a lie, maybe I've been had. But if I were to reject, I would certainly face the haunting and terrible thought, perhaps it is true and I have rejected my God. His name is Sheldon Van Auken. He noticed this gap between the probable and the proved. And it wasn't just in front of him. Quickly, he realizes there's a gap either way. Your faith should have its reasons, friends, for sure. We are told, I I can't get into that. I encourage you, friends, have a reasonable faith. Have a reasonable faith. But there is always a gap. If you believe yourself to be a purely rational creature, I want to encourage you to doubt that. Learn how to doubt your doubts. If your own experience is not enough of a witness to this, psychologists actually have a whole category called motivated reasoning devoted to the fact that our reasoning is motivated by other factors. This is very close to my heart and my experience because I spent years buried in apologetics and intellectual objections to Christ. If you, like me, feel that integrity demands that you tackle your intellectual problems with Jesus, then do it. Don't just talk about it. Most of, truly, most of the young men and women that I've spoken with about their intellectual objections to Jesus are unwilling to do any intellectual work. 
which only proves the point that this isn't about cold rationality or theology. There are other motives at work. If you are willing to do some work, come find me. I would love to open my library and my life to you. Uh, and, and we can talk about this stuff for a long time. Uh, but look, I, I know that not everyone in this room struggles with the doubt in that particular way. Uh, and so I want to talk about a broader sense of doubt tonight mostly, and that is uh, the way in which each of us doubts. We may not dwell on the intellectual reasons, but we all doubt. And we doubt usually, usually, because our immediate experience doesn't measure up with our desires. And in that, that gap, we doubt. And I want you to see what Asaph does with his doubts. If you'd put up, um, I guess, through 28, so we can start in verse 15 here, and we'll go through the, the next couple of slides. <clears throat> I, I want to move kind of quick through this. I'm going to read it, and then we'll summarize briefly. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So he kind of, I guess we're going to talk on the way through it. Uh, so he, 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 uh, he, he realizes that his doubts have, have led him to this, to this edge. And right before he crosses over it, he stops himself and he goes, maybe I should explore this more. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. That's what he was envious of, right? Why they're prospering. But what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Let's go to the next one. Then I realized that my heart was bitter. And I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you, God. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you. That's interesting. What had he been desiring? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak, but my God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. You should tattoo that, somebody. Those who desert him will perish. Don't tattoo that. Uh, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. All right, what just happened? Okay, major movements real quick, major sort of sweeps, right? He doesn't bury his doubt. He doesn't stuff his doubt. He, he doesn't say, I shouldn't think this. Let me read a couple Bible verses real quick and just get myself corrected. He got curious about it. Let me understand, he says, why I'm doing this. What's going on here? He doubts his doubts. Friends, where there is no doubt, there is no maturity. If your faith is a house of cards, knock it down and build something stronger. Your doubts will always, always, if you explore them, always, they will end either in your justifying that you should have had them, and then you can knock something down and build something stronger, and you might as well find that out as soon as possible, or they'll be resolved in the fact that but potentially uh, you're doubting because of an experience or you're, you're unnecessarily doubting or something else. There's all sorts of wonderful possible things that can happen on the positive side of that. Asaph doubted. He explored his doubts and tried to understand. And then he acknowledged, like anybody who's done that will do, 
that that's really difficult to do alone. That's really difficult to do alone. So you know where he went? He went to where the community of God's people is, to the sanctuary. To the sanctuary where the people of God were, and it was there that his doubts were addressed. Perhaps not in the immediate way that he would have hoped for. Remember, he was jealous for their fame. He's jealous of the fat cats, remember? But he remembered that they will answer for their lives before God. And in that realization, he said, oh my gosh, if they have to answer for their lives, I too am answering for mine. I'm being foolish right now. But instead of sitting in shame or embarrassment about his foolishness, what he remembers in that, when he's thinking about them standing before God and him standing before God, he goes, oh my gosh, I belong to God. Do you know that's the Christian hope? Is that body and soul in this life and the next, that we belong to God. That's the hope. That God will guide him to the end, and even if his health may fail and his spirit grow weak, God is his strength. God is his forever. Though my heart and flesh may fail, you are with me. Here's the lesson from this, this particular passage right here. Get curious about your doubts. Search them. But search them within community. Doubt them enough, doubt your doubts enough to let other people cast some light on them because you're probably not the, the most objective observer of your own doubts. Especially because for none of us are our doubts strictly intellectual. They're all tangled up with other motives. So getting a little perspective on them is really, really helpful. And if you're right now thinking, I don't want to do that, well, that's because you have desires, not because you actually intellectually are thinking that you should do it because you have a better reason to, to sort of not explore your doubts in the community. Do you see, in Asaph's story at least, that your doubts should not keep you from the community of God? As a matter of fact, what they ought to do is draw you in to the community of God. Do you see that? Asaph is, is a first-person narrative, and he's struggling. And the whole story turns on when he went to where the community was, worshiping God. He ends by saying how good it is to be near God. He began by questioning God's goodness because of his lack of material possession, and he ends by focusing on the goodness of God's nearness to him. How good is God that he not only welcomes our doubts, but draws near to us in them. Turn your Bibles, if you've got them open, to Matthew chapter 28. I want you to see this in another section. This is a section we often call the Great Commission. Uh, a study just came out that less than half of Christians in North America have even heard of the Great Commission. To our shame, um, God didn't call it the Great Commission, that's just what we title it, but it's a, it's a marvelous passage of Scripture to know, and if you want to know um, a, a good summary of some of what God wants uh, your life to be shaped like and look like, here you go. This is to a community, though, not to an individual, and you should almost always understand these callings in the Scripture to communities, not to individuals. We are individuals within these callings. Um, listen, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, uh, and, and I want you to look for doubt in here. Ready? Listen. Then the, this is right at the end of Jesus' uh, life, right before uh, he, he, uh, he ascends, basically, is the, is the idea into, into whatever ascending meant. Uh, I don't know. He's at the right hand now. Uh, of the Father. Figure that one out. Uh, or doubt. Um, anyway, um, Matthew chapter 28. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. And when he, they saw him, they worshipped him. But some of them doubted. 
Jesus came and told the disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Once again, we have doubt and God's nearness. We will actually find this in almost every instance of doubt in the entire Bible. Look for it. Be hunting for it for as long as you live. Just, just keep your radar open to God's presence and nearness in the midst of people's stories of doubt in the Bible. But did you notice what happened here? Okay, these are Jesus' 11 disciples. If you, if you don't know the story, one of them betrayed him. Uh, it's a big deal. Um, it's uh, Judas. Um, that's why nobody names their kids Judas anymore. Um, <clears throat> but there are 11 of Jesus' disciples. They were going to elect a new one later by some mysterious thing, um, kind of like drawing straws or something. Um, anyway, but at this point, there's 11. And these are guys that he spent years training. These are his best friends. Like these, he, he's the greatest teacher who's ever lived. He said precisely what he meant to say. And these are men he chose. All right? So these are selected people trained by the greatest master ever. And they're a mixed bag. They worshipped, but some of them doubted. Do you see that? And you know what Jesus did? He stopped and he said, those of you who have doubts, come here, I'm going to invite an atheist over and we're going to get in a big fight and we're going to video it for YouTube. Did you see that? Did you catch that? <laughs> no, he didn't do that. Uh, uh, listen, apparently he's like fine with it. Because we're, we're told they worshipped, some of them doubted. And, and then immediately he says, he looks at them and he goes, well, all authority's been given to me, so go. Apparently he's fine with it because his trust actually isn't in them anyway. His trust is in his power. Doubt just isn't a problem for Jesus, friends. For, for those of you guys, just real quick, for those of you guys that, um, some of you may have heard sermons from James. Okay, the, the language there, you, will, you really will not find any Christian commentators that are really talking about that being the feeling of doubt and the exploration of our doubts while we're living out our faith. You won't find any of that. It has to do with this habitual way of living in double-mindedness. It's somebody who prays to God for something, but then while they're waiting decides to go serve other gods for a while. It's somebody who literally lives a life where they're tossed to and fro by the waves, which is the image that James actually uses in James chapter 1. If you don't know this passage, just... When you get there, uh, it's been thought of. That's all I'm saying, okay? Like, uh, it's, if you are living a life where you're double-minded, habitually, that you've, cho you've chosen to live in a safe place where you're hedging your bets on both the God of the Christians, who is God, and then false gods, other places, if you have decided you're not going to commit, but you're going to vacillate, between gods and different ideas all the time. That's what James is talking about. You're, you're not going to, God's not going to respond to that in the way that you want. That's what James is talking about. Jesus, I'll show you how comfortable he is with doubt. Out of the 153 questions posed to him in the gospel accounts, he responds to 147 of them with questions, <laughs> uh, which is super frustrating. <laughs> um, but he's totally cool with you coming to him with your doubts, with you wrestling with him, with you wrestling with your faith. I said we, last semester, uh, it's, it's from one of my favorite uh, teachers, Dallas Willard, uh, 
that, that, that he was asked in an interview by a guy named John Ortberg one time. He said, uh, Dallas, in one word, how would you define Jesus' ministry? Uh, and he said, relaxed. I don't know, he didn't say it like that, but that's how it feels to me. It's like, relaxed. Uh, and um, and it, it just like, oh. And I, I've been reading the gospel accounts, and I, I think about that, and it's, it's so fascinating. When do you see, I'm sorry, I'll finish, okay? Just, uh, I'm, I'm actually feeling that right now. I'm doubting how long I'm going. Um, uh, when do you see Jesus have this sense of like anxiety? When do you see somebody bring a question or a doubt to him and he freaks out and he begins to sort of get controlling over the situation? Like people come to him freaking out about something and everything's a teaching moment. You know, at, at one, one moment, this woman, she, she literally drops what would be the equivalent of about 50 to 60 grand on his feet of perfume. And the disciples do what we all would do, what the self-righteous among us would do. Jesus, do you know how much that money could have been used to benefit the poor? You could have put somebody through, college, through a, uh, some colleges with 50 grand, you know, uh, <laughs> you know when I grew up. Uh, anyway, um, and Jesus is like totally relaxed. Like he, it's a teaching moment for him. And I promise God, Jesus cares way more about how money is used than any of us. He cares way more about it. He knows the good that it could do and the damage that it can do. He cares way more about how it's used. He's just relaxed. And 153 times by one person's count, people come to him with questions. 147 times, he doesn't freak out. He goes, I got a question for you. And he asks him a question back. He's like, I'm here. I'm in this moment. I love that you're with me. Let's go. He invites people to wrestle with him. Kirsten and I both sort of geek out over the fact that the, the name Israel literally means one who wrestles with God. Do you know that? That's where the name came from. There was a guy named Jacob, and he, he had this very strange thing happen one night where he was wrestling with an angel of the Lord. Uh, I, have, I don't know what to do that story. Uh, there's really fun things to do that story. But on the other side of it, God names him Israel which means one who wrestles with God. And it's like God said, ooh, this is the perfect name for my people. People who wrestle with me. People who wrestle with me. That's our namesake. We are the people who wrestle with God. We are the community of little faith. We're the people who walk by faith even in our doubt. We are the people who have mixed, we have mixed doubts and beliefs among us. And we're led by a wounded king who lets us prevail over him. It's a crazy family, friends. The people of God are a crazy family, and you're invited to be a part of it. So you doubt? Cool. Welcome to the party. That's, that's the life of the Christian faith is that. The Psalms, I will say this over and over again at the house on Tuesdays, especially because I think if there's one book of the Bible that you ought to be reading, it's probably the Psalms. So that you might learn how the Lord accepts you. So that you might know how the people of God talk and speak. So that you might know the range of what God loves as a part of his family. What are all the voices at the table? The Psalms will teach you how to pray. They are littered with doubt. And he is not scared of it. If you have doubts, bring them with you while you walk across the bridge. If you have doubts... Jesus is looking at you, and he goes, I, you're here? All authority, and I know you have those doubts, and you have those questions. God, friends, I encourage you to get hungry after them, get curious about them, go get, like, figure out what's going on there, do it with other people. There. Oh, as I'm saying that, if you are somebody who an other person is coming to with doubts, relax. 
Be like Jesus. Relax. Your, 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 your immediate, urgent answer that they're angels now is probably not actually going to be sufficient for long. And they will just have to re-engage these questions later, but now without you in their life probably. If somebody's coming to you with doubts, relax. You don't have to know the answers. You can call me. I got like tons of answers. <laughs> no. uh, I, love, I like to talk about doubts. Okay. Um, but listen, in this mixed community of people who are doubting and with faith, I'm going to end this. Jesus says, and he's saying this to you, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's where your trust is. It's not in your faith. It's in Jesus' faith. It's in his power. It's in his authority. He doesn't look at the community and say, I think you're strong enough, so go. He doesn't look at the community and say, I think you've wrestled enough, so go. He doesn't look at the community and say, because you guys have read the, the whole Bible in a year or whatever, because you're celibate, because you have a two-drink limit, because you, whatever, you didn't cheat on your test, I don't know. Like, there, it's a mixed bag of a community that's been with him. All authority on heaven and earth is given to me, therefore, go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And I'm going to be with you until the end of it. I'm going to be with you in the middle of your doubts while you're on the go. If you are, wherever you are right now, I promise, the amount of faith that you have is plenty for him to work with. Plenty. Just come to him. He's not scared of you. He's not scared of your doubts. He actually wants you to wrestle with him. I want you guys to take a moment right now. We're going to spend a moment in silence. We're going to probably do this most weeks because I think we're starved for silence and reflection in our culture. Just take a, a moment. I'm going to pray, and then we'll say the Lord's Prayer together, and we'll come take communion, all right? So take a minute just to think about how the Lord might be working in your heart, and if there's anything he wants you to pray about or confess so you know there's people in the back who will be willing to, who would love to pray with you, um, if God has convicted you of something, if you want to explore doubts with somebody else, go pray with them. There'll be people up front when we do um, communion as well. But take, take a moment to think about that and pray if you need to, and then we'll pray together. Lord, have mercy. Father, we confess that we're a mixed bag. And then we often don't go to the community of your people with our doubts, that we sometimes maybe often don't even explore our doubts. Sometimes we just have them. Father, I am so thankful that your son moves toward communities like that. That he doesn't wait. He moves toward them. And on his authority, he gives them a life to live. Lord, we confess that, if, that any uh, boldness we have with you that our, in, our invitation to sit at the table with the family of God 
the namesake we inherit. All of this we get to do because of your son. Not because we've believed just enough, not because we've figured out the answers to some questions about like Genesis 1. Not because we kept ourselves from sin, but because you are good. Would you send your spirit to, to my friends in this room? Draw near to them, God. Especially if they begin to take the lid off their doubt and they begin to explore what's in there. Draw near to them. And may their desire to be with you rise above their desire to, to be fat cats. <laughs> It is because of your son that we're here. It's because of your son we have hope. It's because of your son that we say uh, already, that we say amen. We want him to come again. And Lord, as we um, pray together, we pray even the way that your son taught us to pray because he doesn't even make us have to figure that out on our own. And so now with one voice, we do pray together the way he taught us to pray, saying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.